Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. The Kingdom Ethics Podcast is a production of Mercy University's Center for Theology and Public Life, where the world's hardest questions meet faith's deepest values. If you Google this week's moral leader, it'll give you the profile card like it does on all major personalities, and in the place where it would normally say, author, civil rights activist, professor, pastor, it simply says, Saint. Born in 1910 in Albania, died 1997 in India. Her name has come to be synonymous with compassion and care, though not foreign from controversy. Our leader for this week started her own religious order, as well as many schools and care centers for the poor and dying. She attained a level of celebrity not normally bestowed upon nuns. If you haven't figured it out yet, this week we're talking about Saint Mother Teresa. So on Facebook, I checked in here. So it says I'm at McAfee School of Theology, and there's the map and the little dot. Uh-huh. And we're surrounded. It's neat on the map. We're surrounded by the this like bird reserve what? this oh. is protected woods right okay. yeah oh, there's little signs ever you haven't read the signs, read the signs. gosh yeah no mcafee and the atlanta mercer campus is really interesting geographically because we're a little pocket of woods in the city of atlanta yeah the uh these trees are protected by the state as some sort of bird sanctuary or something like that so on a map we look like a green donut but I check in, so there's a little dot in the middle of the green donut, and uh, Mike Rollwagon of WordWalk, cool mission-sending organization that I'm a part of, says, uh, I check in and I say, I'm at the Center for Theology and Public Life, and he says, I've always wondered where the center of theological knowledge was, now I know. <laughs> so, hello, and coming to you from the center of theological knowledge. This is the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. I'm Jeremy, and Dr. Gushy, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. Does that microphone make you feel like Rush Limbaugh? This microphone is a gleaming gold microphone that just makes me feel like I've arrived in terms of media. So so there's the picture being taken. And, <laughs> it'll uh, go online. It'll go online. From behind the golden EIB microphone. That's very impressive. With talent on loan from God. (laughs) One hand tied behind my back just to make it fair. This is the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. (laughs) I'm going to have to, I'll record some sort of funky, uh, legally distinct bass line that sounds like the Rush Limbaugh music for for our intro for this week. Okay, sounds good. I think that's reasonable. Um. <laughs> All right. This is the closest you'll ever be to Seriously, being Rush. I love that. That's that's, anyway, go for it. That's pretty cool. All right. So this week uh, we're gonna talk about Mother Teresa. When was she canonized? She's been canonized, it was right? Relatively recent. Not as not like the last year, but a little before that. Because I, I remember it happening and being being a bit surprised. So it must have. 
it could not be later than 2010, because after that I'd understand how these things work. It had to be an uneducated version of myself <laughs> that was confused about what it meant to be a saint. You know, in fact, I believe all three of our recent Catholic leaders have been canonized relatively recently in the book. That is John Paul II and Romero and Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. So nothing Are they but... the only Catholics in there? Uh, something. So here's a quick aside about the book. The book contains leaders representing the Protestant tradition, the Catholic tradition. Uh, Elie Wiesel is Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, Malala is Muslim. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gandhi mm-hmm. comes from India and is representing the, the Hindi tradition. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty broad representation of moral leadership. Yeah, I was asked on a speaking appearance this week from a more conservative Christian student. Uh, do you think it muddies your message basically to have non-Christians in the book, right? And I said, uh, no, although I, I appreciate the question that that part of the message of the book is that moral greatness can appear from anywhere and that different religious and moral traditions can produce great lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually these people can be like a bridge across difference we can we can respect and learn a lot from people um in fact it's one of the greatest bridge builders that there is is to study a great life in another religious tradition so anyway it was an interesting question to get so yes those are our three leaders and they have all been recently canonized all right that's pretty cool yeah i was surprised that Teresa was not already a saint when it happened um so yeah We've we got a lot of saints in our book. Um, and to, the, from the Protestant perspective, we have a whole a whole heap of them, don't a whole, we? A whole heap of them. So, Mother Teresa's story, for most people, starts in Calcutta. Uh, but being Albanian-born in the to live through the 20th century means that she's exposed to a lot of the worst of what humans can do to each other. A lot of Calcutta is seen a lot, though there are human implications and there are systems behind the conditions that people were dealing with. A lot of what we remember about Calcutta are sort of natural evils. She's dealing with sickness and death, deformity and disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she experiences a lot of human direct evil as well, living through the 20th century in Eastern Europe. What's interesting is that she didn't live there long. Um, I mean, her family was a ca- you know Catholic minority family in a predominantly Muslim uh, population. Because it was Ottoman when she was born. Did it still belong to the Ottoman Empire? As I recall, yes. And so she's in the Balkans, you know, which is a confused kind of area anyway. And um, her her dad died mysteriously and was suspected of having been murdered because of his Albanian nationalism. So, but you know, she had little interest in any of that. Mm -hmm. Um, She was one of those kids, and again, a devout, young Catholic, all in from a very early age. We know this about her. But she's like that, that kid in the youth group 
uh, in the Baptist church who hears about Lottie Moon back in the day, right? Or Annie Armstrong in the Southern Baptist environment Mm -hmm. and said, well, I'm going to be a missionary to India. She fell in love with India as a mission destination because of missionaries who came and told the stories about what, about their service there. And, and so, um, she was ready to go and, and she never really wavered on that. So, so she's one of those examples of what happens when you tell, sometimes when you tell kids about missionaries and missions early enough and they fall in love with the idea and then they go. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and she said, she liked to say that she was a citizen of the world, that her her home place didn't matter that much to her, and she never went back after she went to India. Her, the, the town that she's from, over the course of her life, belonged to four or five nation states. Uh-huh. Yeah, Skopje. Um, so... So she belonged to Jesus, she said, but she was a citizen of the world and she loved India. And that was where she felt called and she never wavered from that calling. Uh, so she got out and stayed out mm-hmm. and, and went to where where her heart was, India. She took a fairly normal vocational path as a nun to get there. Yes, you know, uh, join a, <laughs> join an existing order. Uh, trained in that order. Um, then she went to India and she she served in in uh, the order that she had been trained in, Sisters of Loretto. And then then they, they ran a school, so she ended up being a teacher and then a principal, as I recall, in that school. And so and it was, it was uh, cloistered so the kids would come to the school and then they would leave. So they never left, you know, because mm-hmm. they stayed in their order. That, that became an abrasive situation for her the cloistering she never really appreciated that and and eventually what happened was she felt this call to leave the cloister and go into the slums of calcutta and which she wasn't allowed to do she was a cloistered nun. right so she had to ask for permission and there's a weird story there too because you got to get there's a lot of paperwork to leave paperwork. your cloister. Yeah. Uh, so she wants to be decloistered, which is just a fun word. Um, and Exclustration. Does it... Yeah. That <laughs> <It> sounds painful. <laughs> I don't want that. Um, <laughs> it's a surgical procedure. <laughs> and she goes to, to her priest um, or the, the bishop in the area and says, I, I want that horrible thing to be done to me. And the answer she got was, no, we can... Like, what's the, the next thing? It's secularization. Secularization. It's like the nice way of being defrocked. Yeah, it's basically. like honorable discharge. Yeah. If you um, want to leave, you know, you can go back out into the world. But mm-hmm. she didn't want that. She wanted to go into the world as a nun. Right. And so she she agrees. She submits to the authority that tells her, no, we're just going to have to denun you. Um, unnun. We're going to unnun you. And so she goes through that process, and it goes all the way up to, like, the people in Rome that have to sign those documents. And they're like, no, nah, we'll just decloister you. We'll just let you be a nun out there. That sounds good to us. And so in this kind of unexpected roundabout way, she gets to maintain that ministry authority that comes yeah. with identity, her habit. Identity and authority. Even though she does shed her habit, she stops dressing 
she like want, the nuns of her she order. She to dress more uh, in an Indian style. But, by the way, there's a, you might say, faintly feminist dimension to this story. In this sense, she's a <clears throat> driven, called female in a male-dominated church. Mm-hmm. Who has a specific vision that she feels called to pursue, and she has to deal with the male power structure to pursue it. She doesn't just leave that power structure, but she's also a relentless force within that power structure, pushing for what she believes God has called her to do. And then, of course, once she does make the move and, and, and develops this historic ministry with the sick and the dying and the poor in, in India, then all of a sudden you know, she's she's a hero for the church as a whole, right. a model, and ends up having, of course, a lot of independence because because of the significance of the ministry that, that she pursued. Yeah, her sort of appearance on the scene as a public figure, um, and sort of she gains that status of living saint sort of thing, Yeah, um, gives her... A lot of ability to to work the system, uh, but the system will kind of end up working her too. Yeah. So, you know, I I teach in the context of a seminary that decided a long time ago that from the beginning that women and men would have equal status and equal opportunity, right? And that's not the same in the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and yet there are opportunities for women to serve in various ways. What's interesting is the way that she was trying to choose a, to chart a new path here, a nun out in the world. And of course, there are other nuns who serve in the world, but there was, was just whatever she was asking for was not what was customary. She had to fight the system while submitting to it. Right. And she was successful eventually, providentially, I think one might say. And so she leaves uh, the convent and basically goes to that local desperately poor community and just starts gathering children around her and teaching them and then it went from there did did she have a plan when she started did not not that i can tell she had a calling not a plan Mm. that'll preach (laughs) that's a good line (laughs) that should be the name of the next biography written about her if you'd like to purchase this name for your biography of mother (laughs) Teresa. Checks are payable to the Center for Theology and Public Life, Memo Kingdom Ethics. She had a calling, not a plan. And she just went into the neighborhood and, and started hanging out with kids and teaching them. And and eventually, of course, was was drawn to the, to the tremendous, um, what you might say, could say, are health care needs mm-hmm. of vast and neglected population so she got involved in trying to care for the physical needs of um of this population but then also um when somebody's dying there's not much more you can do for them other than give them a dignified dying right then she got felt called to that too well walking around the city she was confronted by the dying there's a, a it developed in the culture at that time that death was dangerous and contagious, so you put it outside. A lot of people, when they entered the final stages of sickness, were abandoned 
Yes. And so, you know, when you actually look at what she did, just picture somebody who felt drawn like a magnet to those who everybody else fled from. Mm-hmm. And I think one reason I find her so amazing, she's one of the most amazing people in this book to me. Because I will admit that I am not wired this way. If if somebody were coming to me with big open running sores because of untreated skin condition or something, I'm sorry, I wish it were not true, but it is true. I do not feel drawn to such people. I want them to get help. I'd be happy to help them get help, but um, the normal physical revulsion at the revolting, mm-hmm. she was the opposite. People um, with maggots coming out of their sores because they've been left without care, that's who she was drawn to. Yeah, And... But the thing about it is, it was based on a theology and a spirituality, a very Jesus-centered theology and spirituality. As you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And it wasn't just abstract. Because you know that whole passage, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, one of the most important passages in my canon, in the canon. It's a narrative where Jesus, you know, depicts himself as the one who comes to us. And she articulates that. So beautifully. Better than any theologian of the 20th century, I think. How do you know where to meet Jesus? Among the sick, the thirsty, the imprisoned, the dying. This is where you meet Jesus. As you did it to the least of these, you did it to me, means I am the one who comes to you when you meet that dying person by the side of the road. And I think she she meant it quite literally slash sacramentally. Aha, uh-huh. what do I mean by that? What do you mean by that? Thank you for asking, Jeremy. Ah, sacramentally. In, in Catholic theology, when you take the Eucharist, you meet Jesus. Literally. Body and blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. But in a kind of a sacramental reading of Matthew 25, 31 through 46, when you care for the one who nobody else cares for, you meet Jesus. Just as concretely. And so, if you want to know where to meet Jesus, go to where the people are most abandoned and neglected and uncared for. That's where you'll meet them. And she meant it. She really believed that. Yeah. She's one of these people. And you, you meet you meet them in, in your church and in your community. But she's one of these people who really loves Jesus. Yeah. And like even just reading about her. And you can there are places you can go. You can read her. You can read letters she sent back home. You can read the letters she sent to her, um, the priest that received her confession. You can find things that she said and wrote in interviews. But even just people talking about her, you can see her loving Jesus. And she gets to to meet him in the encounter with the dying and the sick and 
but also she gets to join him in like direct mimicking of his care for lepers and such yes. things. So, so as we work on our kind of theological imagination, it's it's two way then, in in a sense. Where do you go to meet Jesus? You meet him in the leper and the dying and the sick and so on. Um, but you also imitate and obey and participate in his ministry when you are on the caregiving end as well. And so you might say you meet him coming and going. You meet mm-hmm. him in the serving and you meet him in the person. And it was a very Jesus-centered piety that she had. Um, she was not a scholar. And she was not actually all that well-educated in some ways. Um, and, and when she got outside of her lane and tried to do stuff like broker peace agreements <laughs> in Lebanon or whatever, it didn't go very well for her, right? But, but what she was was somebody with an extraordinary vision and calling and relentlessness when it came to caring for the last and the least and the lost. Mm-hmm. And it was so attractive. It was one of the most compelling contemporary incarnations of an, um, of an engaged ascetical vision. I'm using big words today. so It's good. It's good stuff. Make so, sure you define them. So what I mean is she was a nun still. Poverty, chastity, and obedience. Mm-hmm. Simple living. They, she and the order that she ended up creating, they had nothing. That you're allowed to have if you join her order. Do you, what's the name? Uh, Sisters of Charity. Am if, I remembering? Correctly? I think so. I think that's right. If you become a sister, or there, are, there's a male counterpart too. Right. If you join this order, you are allowed three articles of clothing: one to wear, one to clean, one to mend. Mm-hmm. You're allowed a bowl. It's kind of uh, Buddha-esque. Mm-hmm. You can have your bowl. You can have your garment. And I think you're, it, it's the, your Bible prayer book. And there's one other thing you're allowed to have. It might be a fork. <laughs> like, those are the only things you're allowed to own. And there are rules about what you can eat. It's all minimal. It's yeah. a very extreme order. In fact, she was she was told early on, you're, you're actually you're working yourself and your nuns too hard. You, you need to lighten up a little bit let them have mm-hmm. more nourishment and a little it more. was rice and pepper or something, <laughs> something like, like that. that a little more rest and so on um i think part of what what made her appealing was how radically countercultural all of that was in she came to the, she came to the attention of most people in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. the age of excess uh, big hair, big cars, big TV shows, big money. Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa, right? Um, it's interesting, you know, the the other celebrity of her era, who I think of at the same time as having the kind of star appeal that she ended up having, was uh, Princess Diana. Huh. They were, they were kind of paired at the time. You often saw them. Um, on TV, and, and Princess Diana ended up having a concern for the poor and so on. Mm, but she loved children. Yeah, but she ended up being like you know the glitzy, glamour celebrity who also had a uh, who had a concern for you know charitable concern. But Mother Teresa at the same time was was the completely kind of uh, 
monastic version of celebrity at that time. And somehow I think she spoke to that age of excess with her simplicity and her love and her compassion. Mm-hmm. It's As the Cold War ends, as we move towards the 90s, and you have the ramping up of trying to prove which version of reality is better, and the markets are going to war with each other, and you have this deep need in the West to prove that consumerism and comfort is right. Uh, You have Mother Teresa wearing the wrong size shoes as it slowly deforms her feet so that she can give away sandals to children. Yeah. Um, It says something interesting about Christian witness. I think that there is always an audience for radical Christian witness. Meanwhile, it'll get a lot of criticism and contempt, too. But but there's always an onlooking world looking for something other and better than than whatever degraded version of culture we are creating at a given time. And I think she offered something that was compelling. Um, The criticisms are legitimate. She... She was not a help. She did not offer health care like when you go to a hospital. Right. The uh, what was uh, Hitchens line? The angel of death in Calcutta. When I was. That's so mean. So for me, Mother Teresa was an idea that I had um, and I could pick her her picture out um, being raised in the 90s. She's on to I knew who Mother Teresa was. Um, I don't really know what she did or where she was. But I knew she was like um, a word you used for someone that was really good. Like she was a term that I could throw around like, you ain't no Mother Teresa. You say things like that to people that were acting self-righteous or something. Um, But it became really vogue around the time that I was in high school to watch uh, Christopher Hitchens documentary uh, online about how she's really evil. And we need to throw away our love for Mother Teresa because of her. Uh, let's see, what were they? Her uh, misuse of money was really important to him. I thought that one wasn't as compelling, but she was really bad with money. And her order is still really bad with money. Um, that she didn't provide helpful care. That she was just killing people. Uh, that they were, they were attempting to force deathbed conversions. And then he was very upset about her geopolitical uh career and that became very popular when i was in high school that and zeitgeist (laughs) it's not a good time um i i would say that what she should be remembered for what a charitable a charitable memory of her work would be that she threw her arms around those who nobody else cared if they lived or died and she picked a country that at the time especially had a population, a massive population, maybe even could be described as a population problem. A lot of people crammed into, into that country. I think it's a billion now. And I visited uh, what's now called Kolkata and Delhi. And uh, I have, I don't think I've, outside of Hong Kong, never have I seen such massive numbers as in those two cities, you just feel wow. You just feel um, overwhelmed by people. They're everywhere, and so whenever I think of her ministry in, in Calcutta or Kolkata, I'll just say Calcutta. 
um, I, I think of the sheer numbers of people, numbers mm-hmm. of needy people. Of course, it's not all poverty. And yeah, it's not what the city wants you to think. Right, there's right. there's you been know. a big pushback from uh, Calcutta that they, they're not huge fans of Teresa because now the whole world knows them as the place with dying children and leprosy and extreme yeah. poverty when it's also a city of culture and music and art and education. Not exactly your chamber of commerce, uh, you know, pitch. But there were lots of, undoubtedly still are lots of needy people there, mm-hmm. and that's where she went. So I think that deep draw to those who are in the deepest need, that deep compassion, that that love and the sense that Jesus is to be met there precisely, not among the high-born and the elite, but among the lowest. That all is, seems right to me. It seems right biblically and theologically and admirable. It evokes that sense of awe that I think we're looking for when we look for people who do, who we might admire. Um, the She incarnated a message of human dignity and sacredness of each and every human life around the same time that Pope John Paul II was articulating that message. Mm-hmm. And so that matters a lot to me because that's at the heart of my own ethic. And and I also want to and believe all Christians should want to look and encounter every person as sacred in God's sight. Both her and JP2 are big dignity voices. Um one of the reasons that we are doing Mother Teresa right now is because of the life choice arguments, current flare-up. That culture war um, is rearming right now uh, over decisions made in New York and Virginia and Vermont. Um, the lines are being drawn thicker and darker. Um, and these are concerns that Teresa was particularly involved in and she didn't always get it right um but she was a big voice on this issue Uh, let me say a word to our massive growing audience um it is getting bigger bigger. it is getting bigger we've got we've crossed several growth thresholds that are very exciting um okay tiny pitch tiny pitch and then you're gonna say a word i'm gonna say something profound but okay are y'all ready for profundity because you're gonna have to wait (laughs) Uh, a few days ago i was somewhere i've never been somewhere far away it's very exciting but i got on a public computer and i opened um an incognito browser to make sure there was no way i was influencing what was going on went to one of our podcast sites and searched ethics in the search bar and we are coming up number three in the world, uh, beating out some other very large names. And so we're very thankful that you are here. Awesome. Okay, so make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Okay, a word of profundity. What was that profound word? Oh, <laughs> um, I, I want to say that that she was resolutely anti-abortion. And one of her most famous moments of her life is when she comes to the National Prayer Breakfast when Bill Clinton is president. And there's Bill and Hillary and and Al Gore and Tipper Gore. And she turns to them and she says to them, uh, abortion is the greatest threat to human life in the world today. Nobody should ever have an abortion. 
If you think you need an abortion, just bring the child to me. We'll take the child. Again, that's classic Mother Teresa because I think the average annual, I think what I, last time I checked, there were like 44 million abortions a year worldwide. Mother Teresa's order was not going to be able to handle 44 million children a year, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's a, it's a moral statement. Bring the child to me. Nobody ever needs to end, end a life. Um, but it was an important one. And, and the fact that she said it there with Democratic president and vice president was, was interesting and kind of brave. Um, very countercultural. Was she invited back? No, she didn't ever go back, I don't think. Um, I think that the, that abortion is a tragically difficult issue and one that is not made any better by, by demagoguing and politicizing mm-hmm. it. In real life, the issue emerges when somebody's in crisis and they find themselves to be pregnant and they had not a, a, have not planned to be pregnant and they had not arranged resources or have resources to deal with a pregnancy and they find themselves in, themselves in crisis and they don't know what to do. And the law is the blunt instrument in relation to those human stories. And 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 then when we politicize the most exceptional extreme voices or also moments like late abortions or whatever's in the news right now, um, it's it, again it's a distraction from the most common circumstance, which is a woman finds herself in crisis and doesn't know what her options are, doesn't know what to do. And so I my own career has I've attempted to take a position that, I would describe as a kind of a, um, a nuanced or compassionate pro-life position in which, in which I never give up the idea that elective abortion as a routine feature of a modern society represents a grave failure of various types, including a failure of human relationships, a failure of economic justice, a failure of imagination to see the the value of each and every life, including unborn life. But I've also sought to say that even if abortion law were to be changed tomorrow, if especially if it were to be changed tomorrow, it would it would expose the hundreds of thousands just in our own country of situations in which people are in desperate circumstances. And, and no provision being made for them. So that's the kind of conversation I think we should be having about abortion. Mm-hmm. It's possible to be pro-life and still kind. Right. And, and But what has happened is this is the ultimate political football. In many ways, it's an issue that the most, that it benefits the, the extremes mm-hmm. and people can raise money off the issue. It's a politically um, polarizing issue. It helps Democrats kind of cement their brand loyalty. It helps Republicans cement their brand loyalty. And uh, meanwhile, real people suffer. And and I it's I think that's so tragic. Anyway, Mother Teresa, she was like all of the like the Catholic tradition as a whole, resolutely pro life, resolutely anti abortion, but it was not a it was not a political football for her. It was just part of a a seamless vision that from womb to tomb 
Each and every life has a measurable value and must be treated as such. Something that I strongly believe in. So we uh, we honor Mother Teresa. She's not really who you wanted to call if you needed to have uh, peace negotiated in Romania or someplace. You know, she's not a good voice on apartheid South Africa. Not not your expert on that, but but when I meet that person in Atlanta today who was asking me for money. I want to be like her. I want to look that person in the eye and and treat them as the immeasurably dignified human beings that they are. And I want to live in a society that that characterizes the values of that society. And we don't live in that society. That seems like a really good place to wrap up this conversation. So let's take a listen to the leadership lessons from the Moral Leadership for a Divided Age book on Mother Teresa. Leadership Lessons Mother Teresa's life and work offer a number of important lessons about moral leadership. Life is sacred. We will always have the poor among us because the broad swath of society will always ignore the voiceless and powerless. Great moral leaders of all religious traditions refuse to surrender to callousness and always center their concerns on the least of these. Know what makes you great. Mother Teresa was a wonderful minister to the poor and sick, but stumbled in politics. Leaders succeed and fail based on self-awareness of their gifts and limitations. Do not fear doubt. Many moral leaders possess an appealing and contagious sense of zeal and certainty. Under the surface, almost all wrestle with doubt in some way. Do not chastise yourself or fear uncertainty. Embrace the reality of doubt and ask how you will move forward with it as a passenger on the journey. Institutions evolve with people. Mother Teresa was an innovator within one of the oldest and most structured organizations on the planet. Balance when to strike out on your own with maintaining the benefits of long-standing institutions, and you may end up with the best of both worlds. Practice self-care. The counsel to make sure her sisters ate well and got sufficient rest was perhaps the best advice Mother Teresa ever received. Those who strive to serve others too often end up neglecting themselves. You must be kind to yourself before you can be kind to others. Mother Teresa might be one of the most recognizable names of this book. Her saintly devotion to the poor made her a larger-than-life figure, an archetype for others. Witness the number of times people are labeled the Mother Teresa of their city, nation, or people. She elevated the cause of the poor during her life. Her memory does the same today. She put the poor on our moral radar. She demanded that we acknowledge the reality of such poverty in a world overflowing with bountiful wealth in the hands of so few. Mother Teresa teaches us to see and listen to the people on the margins of society. Her most lasting legacy in the end is embodying the sacredness of life through compassionate care and proclamation of life's worth. She valued those whom others did not value. As a result, she forces each of us 
to ponder why we find it so easy to ignore the humanity of others. That's a good word. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jeremy. Till next time. We're glad that you chose to spend some time with us today at the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. If you are enjoying this project, please like, subscribe, share, comment, leave us reviews in various places. It does more than you can imagine to expand our audience. Thank you for listening.